0: Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Well, welcome to uh, this special episode of the Radiant Church Podcast. This is Daniel 11 in detail. And uh, I'm Andrew Bullard. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Radiant Church located right in Seneca, South Carolina, about 10 minutes out from Clemson University. And I'm excited about this episode. I hope we get to do more of these down the road. Uh, There's just so much I would have loved to have covered in uh, Daniel chapter 11 and that teaching we just did. Um, But you you only have so much time, right? You're trying to fit as much as you can in a 30 to 40 minute window and um, you know, throughout the Daniel series, we've we've done teachings in parts one and two, that kind of thing. But, um, but every teaching, every message that you see on a Sunday morning, and whether you go to Reunion Church or not, this is true from whatever church you may happen to attend if you attend church. And if you don't attend church somewhere, you're listening to this right now. Um, let me just tell you, man, this is this is true everywhere. Your pastors or pastors put a lot of work. Into their messages, hours of study and uh, research, and, and and seeking God and praying, and so much is left on, uh, you know, the cutting table. It doesn't make it into the sermon. You're trying to trim stuff down to get into that forty-ish minute window or so, and uh, just the amount of theology and practical application and history and just and just, just all kinds of stuff. It doesn't stories. All kinds of things that just don't get in, and uh, the beauty. Of something like this is, uh, we we have an opportunity just to kind of walk through a lot of the things that didn't make it into the message, and, and it's a long form podcast, so, uh, you know, you can start, stop, whenever you want, pick it, pick it back up, it's okay. We can cover everything we need to cover, and we're not constrained by forty minutes, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Uh, so I, I before we jump into this, let me just kind of. Uh, throw this out there. If you haven't listened to or watched the teaching to Daniel chapter 11, uh, go back and do that real quick. Just just hit pause, go back and watch that. You can go to our website, it's radiantchurchsc.com. We can go to YouTube, social pages there. You can see uh, the message. We can also listen to it at any podcast platform, Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're there. Just search for the Radiant Church podcast. Hit subscribe. You can also listen um, as well. But go ahead and do that if you haven't. Uh, I think that would be really helpful. Uh, I'm also gonna just sort of presuppose too that you're you you are interested in this. Okay, so you're open-minded. If you're coming into this and you have a pretty closed mind and, and your attitude's sort of, well, I'm I'm here to listen just to to just to see how the Bible doesn't actually you know. Uh, point to some incredible events in history, or uh, you know, if you're trying to disprove things, uh, you're 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 very slanted in your perspective and worldview, and this is not going to be a very helpful podcast for you. But if you're open-minded, and and this is whether whether you're a believer or not, you know, if you're open-minded, and you say, okay, I'd like to see what the Bible has to say about some of these ancient historical events. Is it that accurate? Is it pointing to? some of the things that uh, I, I think it might point to. And you know, what does that mean about Scripture as a whole? Then this is going to be a great episode for you because you're not only going to learn, but you're going to grow. And I think you're going to be challenged as well. Um, now, the, the next thing I want to presuppose is that you got the Bible in front of you, whether it's on you know the Bible app on your phone, an actual hard copy. I don't know, but uh, I'm not going to read through Daniel chapter 11. I, I want you to have that kind of with you and you can sort of follow along with me. As we're walking through this, the translation I'm using is the NLT, New Living Translation. You're going to hear some phrases that I'll quote, and they may not match you word for word per se, if you're like using the NIV or something like that. So I just want you to know that I'm using the NLT just to give you kind of an idea, okay? All right, so let's jump into uh, Daniel chapter 11. And I'm not going to go over a lot of the things I went over in the teaching Um that we did on sunday that's that's the reason why i'm saying go back and watch or listen to that if you haven't yet uh, i'm going to skip some of that stuff because i want to get into the nitty-gritty and into the details daniel 11 is a vision uh that is being explained to daniel from an angelic being we don't know who that being is could be gabriel could be some other type of angel we're not entirely sure uh but it is a a vision that is being explained to him. And the content is wild. I mean, it is crazy. Yeah, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, this is going to read like Game of Thrones here in some places as we work through this. Trust me. Uh, the first few verses of Daniel 11, we've talked about this in the teaching, but they, they point to Persia and Greece. There's, there's there's four kings that are going to come up in Persia. And the last one that appears likely is Xerxes I. He He's getting ready to invade Greece in 480 BC. Uh, and and he's got this big party he throws. And if you read the first chapter of Esther, um, you, you really see the party kind of, it goes 180 days, wild stuff, right? Esther's got nothing to do with this. It just happens to be that that's the, that's the background that's going to lead to Vashti not coming in, when Xerxes calls for her, and that leads to deposing the queen and getting a new one. That's kind of how Esther comes in the picture. But what Xerxes is really doing is he's raising money and men, and he's getting ready to go on a campaign. He wants to invade Greece, and he will. He'll actually destroy Athens. Uh, The problem with Xerxes, though, and his military might, is he's going to be successful in uniting all these independent Greek city-states so Athens Thermopylae Sparta they were all independent of each other uh, when Xerxes invades he unites the city-states uh, this this invasion by the way this is this is the Battle of Thermopylae if you ever heard of that it's the 300 Spartans uh, which which is really cool it sounds really awesome 300 Spartans held up the entire Persian army uh, it was actually about a thousand or so people though yeah there's 700 thespians that always get lost in history i feel bad for those guys 300 spartans plus the 700 thespians were with them anyway but that's that battle um that takes place so that that's xerxes in the military campaign that he's uh he's getting ready to go off on and he's that fourth persian emperor now verses three and four of chapter four talk about Alexander the Great and all the great things that, you know, he's he's very powerful, right? He did a lot of great things uh, in the Middle East from a cultural perspective for sure, but he had a lot of military victories uh, that he brought about, including the, the fall of the Persian Empire in 330 BC. His empire is divided among four generals. Alexander actually has an heir. Now, people don't think that, but he had a son, and uh, his son, um, I don't know how we would describe that today. You know, his son had some, shall we say, disabilities. That's probably the best way to put that. He was not someone, especially in a world of ancient history, uh, where where being a strong leader, a strong man, especially right, is really important. You don't put a guy like Alexander's son on the throne, and so he's murdered. Uh, shortly after Alexander dies, so is his caretaker, who was an advisor that Alexander had, and so um, the kingdom gets divided into four different kingdoms um, amongst his generals. Now, what chapter eleven really focuses in on, starting with verse number five, are two of these kingdoms: kings uh, of the north and the king of the south. Um, this is this is this is important. The reason why we're focusing here and not on the other two kingdoms is because what today is Israel is going to pass between the kings of the north and south like a ping-pong ball. I mean, this is going to go back and forth for centuries uh, between these two kingdoms. And so the vision has to do with Daniel's people, right? And so that's why we're honing in on these two kingdoms, the north and the south. Now, the kingdom in the north, um, we'll, we'll just call that Syria for the sake of just just familiarity. Um, but they were known as the Seleucids, so The Seleucid Empire, you want to Google that, it's S E L E U C I D S. The Seleucids. So the the Seleucid Empire stretched pretty far. I mean, it went from what's today Turkey, uh, throughout the Middle East, all the way across uh, Arabia, Iran, what's today Iran, was Persia back then, uh, into India. So it's pretty far. Uh, The other kingdom in the south, it was, we'll, we'll call it Egypt because that's essentially what it was, again, for familiarity, but they were the Ptolemy uh, kingdom, that's spelled P, P silent, T-O-L-E-M-Y. All right, that's how you spell that. So the Seleucids and the Ptolemies were the ones who were fighting back and forth. We will refer to them as Syria and Egypt, Syria to the north, Egypt to the south. Uh, They were allies at first, kind of had this sort of like enemy, my enemy is my friend thing going on. Uh, and so they defeated some of the, the, the third kingdom. There were four kingdoms, right? They defeated the third kingdom together by teaming up. The problem um, with their little short-lived alliance <laughs> is that the Ptolemies betrayed the Seleucids. So the Egyptians betrayed the Syrians and they seized Judea from the Syrians. And that ignites two centuries of conflict. And that's where you know, Judea goes back and forth. And, and, it's, and it's, it's it's all strategic, right? I mean, if you control Judea, which is today Israel, if you control that that swath of land, you can go right into Europe, right? You can go right into Asia. You, I mean, it, it's at a... God's people, they're at a unique place in, in on the planet. Uh, there, there, there's probably no... There's no place really like it. From where you are in Israel, you can get to Africa, Europe, or Asia right? I mean, it's a really important strategic place to have. And so there's, there's a reason why the Egyptians said, we're going to grab that from the Syrians. And they did. Um, so two centuries of fighting begin to take place. Verse number six, the angel says that she will lose her influence over him, him being the King of the North. And it's in reference to a political marriage that takes place. That takes place in 250 BC. So let me tell you what happened right here. So, um, Ptolemy II, he's he's the ruler for Egypt king of the south. he gives Berenice uh, daughter to Antiochus II who is the king of the north. Now anytime you see the the, the, the names Ptolemy uh, most of the rulers in the south had Ptolemy as their surname so whenever you see Ptolemy it's the South Antiochus you're going to see that a lot Antiochus one two three four uh, there that is the north okay that's 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 the names that they took. So, told me the II gives Berenice to Antiochus II um, after Antiochus divorced his first wife. Now, follow with me here. This is where we kind of get games of throning type kind of thing. He later remarries his first wife. So, Antiochus is like, you know what? Kind of like my first wife. Let's bring her back. So, he does. And so, he remarries his first wife. And what his first wife does is she poisons Antiochus she poisons Berenice, and she poisons um, their son. And, and, and that's why you <laughs> there's the loss of influence here. So the angel says, well, you know, she'll lose influence. You know why? Because she's dead. That's why. So she loses influence because she, she ain't going to make it. Um, all right. So what happens next in verse number seven? Well, we, we fast forward a little bit, not too far down the road. But Ptolemy third, it's Berenice's brother. He's now the ruler of uh, in Egypt. And uh, Seleucus II, he's now the ruler in Syria. One of the few instances where you don't have the name Antiochus that a ruler in Syria takes. But Seleucus II is, is now the ruler. And so, uh, hey, my sister's dead. You guys killed her. Uh, let's go, right? There's 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 a lot of revenge here in this conflict. And so he attacks the uh, Seleucids in response to those assassinations. And he carries back. Idols and plunder and all types of stuff. Um, what do the Syrians do? Well, they counterattack and they get that land back in, in in that counterattack. And the battles that they the two kingdoms have continue. Verse number ten: the sons and the king in the north. You see that phrase? It's a reference to Seleucus the second Callinicus. I know. It's a lot of crazy words, and I'm sure I butchered the last part of that name. And Antiochus III, who is known as Antiochus the Great, they had a combined reign that stretched from 227 to 187 BC. Um, so, when you see a combined reign like that between two rulers, what that means is that there was a, a, a co regency in, involved. So, a lot of times in the ancient world, and you see this in scripture a lot, if you read 1st, 2nd Kings, Chronicles, you'll see the overlap. You'll have kings who are they aging, and uh, their their sons are coming up, and maybe their sons are not quite ready to rule, so they'll they'll become what's called a, a regent. You'll have a co-regency in place where the father he's still the king, but he kind of starts to slowly fade out, and as his son is mentored and trained, and 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 kind of grows into that role, son sort of gradually. Uh, gets power, and that's why you have sometimes these overlaps in the reigns. And because if, if you look at the reigns of kings in the ancient history, and you look at just the dates of when they started and ended, some things don't always add up. Less well, because you have some overlap oftentimes between two guys who are ruling concurrently. And then when the dad dies, you know, old father daddy king there, he's too old. He he croaks right. He's out. Then the son becomes the sole ruler, and and. Um, and 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 he just takes over. That was very common back then. Okay, so these guys um, they carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress is what we what we hear here. And so what does that refer to? Well, I think when the angel was telling Daniel is look, these guys are going to get into uh, th- th- this fighting is going to get severe and it's going to go all the way to Gaza. So look at what just look on a map today, and find where Gaza is, the Gaza Strip. Okay, that's that's what we're talking about here. Uh, Or it might have been Egypt itself, we don't know which. What we do know is that the Syrian army pushes all the way back to either Gaza or Egypt itself uh, in this conflict. And so Antiochus III, from verse number 10 all the way through verse number 19, he's going to be kind of the focal point here. And the reason for that uh, is because it's during his reign that Judea finally falls into Syrian control once and for all. It's, it's firmly within the grasp of the Syrians. So you remember that two centuries of back and forth fighting king. Okay, so now that's come to an end. Judea is no longer going to go back and forth. They're not a pawn anymore. They're now in the hands of the Syrian empire. This is really important because it's going to set the scene for all the horrors that Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, inflicts on the Jewish people all right verse number 11 verse 11 and 12 they describe the Battle of Rafia. so that took place in 217 BC at, at what today is Rafa which is located 19 miles south of Gaza City so look on a map find uh, the Middle East look for the Gaza Strip, Gaza City, go 19 miles south, that's Rafa, that's where this battle takes place, all right? Told me the fourth, he had the numbers. So Egypt had the numbers, man. They had 75,000 men. The Syrians had 68,000. And so the Egyptians easily defeat the Syrians, but the victory is short-lived. The angel says it's short-lived, and the reason for that is because Ptolemy fourth, he allows Antiochus III to regroup, rather than continue the advance to Antioch. So the Egyptians get this big victory, and instead of striking while the iron's hot, you ever heard that phrase before, strike while the iron's hot, you know? Well, instead of doing that, and just decapitating their enemy and destroying the empire by, by going straight to Antioch, which is in Syria today, it's the capital, instead of doing that, um, they stop, (laughs) and they turn back. Now, I'm sure sure you can think of a couple of instances in history where, you know, we thought maybe we should keep pressing and take out the enemy. First thing I thought of when I was researching this, I was a kid, I was really young when this was going on, but the very first Persian Gulf War that happened, uh, the the united states and its allies easily overwhelmed the iraqi military in kuwait and liberating kuwait and there was a big push to go all the way to baghdad and we could have at that point we could have gone straight to baghdad ended everything right then and there right but we didn't they said we accomplished our mission we did we came out here you know came to do let's go home and you know as fate kind of had it, here we are, we're back in there again in 2003, and we're kind of finishing the job, so to speak. Well, look, we could have ended it in 91 and not had to worry about things in 2003 and the insurgency and all the other terrible things that took place after that. Kind of same thing here. There was a lot of push for by Ptolemy's advisors, go to Antioch, crush him, crush your enemy. He doesn't do that. And I'm going to tell you, man, he rused the day. That he didn't do that, uh, because that victory is very short-lived. He gave his enemy time to regroup, and so that's 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 going to cause come back to haunt him. It's going to come back to bite him. During that time frame, political instability really disrupts uh, Egypt. All right. So, told me the Fourth, who's 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 the ruler here at this point? He doesn't have the ability. To govern his kingdom like he's been accustomed to. So this instability kind of holds him back a little bit. In verses 13 and 14, okay, if you're looking at Daniel chapter 11, verse 13, a few years later, king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. That's what we're talking about, the instability. Valid men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of the vision, but they won't succeed. So, in this kind of moment, Ptolemy the Fourth dies, age 35, young guy, um, sudden death. No one knows why, no one knows how, he, he, he's just dead. Uh, and, and what took place was that his queen also died, kind of mysterious, kind of like, oh, hey, what's going on here, right? That leaves uh, Ptolemy the Fifth, who is six six years old he's the sole heir uh it's 204 bc he got a six-year-old on the throne antiochus the third was able to go back regroup his army gather his forces because uh, the egyptians the, decided not to strike while the iron was hot all of a sudden now if you're the Syrians, oh my gosh, my enemy is dead. His wife is dead. They got a six-year-old sitting there on the throne. Let's go, right? Let's call the shot. Let's do this. There's there's all kinds of confusion, instability it was already brewing, but man, now it's got to be really hot. Let's let's go now, and that's kind of there, which is which is strategic, right? It's a great idea, and so they 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 take off, and so what happens in this moment of weakness? As he does, the angel says he's going to come back with an army greater than before. Well, he does that. He comes back with a much greater army. And so political instability continues in Egypt. And the reason for that is because, you know, told me the fifth is six. He can't govern. Your six-year-old can't do this. So there's a guy named Agathocles who is his advisor, his kind of uh, guardian sort of in a way, right? Uh, steward, uh, maybe we might call And so he he's the one that's really kind of calling the shots for the king. He has very heavy-handed policies that are not popular among the people, and it causes even more instability. And actually causes the general population to start to rebel against their king. So you got this is a great moment for Syria to come in, and they do that at the Battle of Panium, which is today Caesarea Philippi. So that sounds familiar, it should. In the New Testament, Caesarea Philippi is one of those places where Jesus ministers at, right? It so over 200 BC, is, uh, this Battle of Panium. It's also where the Cave of Pan uh, was at. Uh, so it was one of those, uh, in, in, in the first century when Christ was walking uh, the earth, there was this Greek idea that certain caves held entrances to the underworld. And the cave of Pan near Caesarea Philippi was one of those such caves. I really thought that, hey, if you want to go into hell, there it is. Just walk right through. Like, you could do that kind of thing. Um, So this is the area that we're in. Syria has 70,000 men this time around. Uh, They had 68,000 before. They annihilate the Egyptian army. Uh, there was some number about twenty five thousand or so of these guys. Now, if you look back um, when when Egypt came up uh, earlier in two seventeen at the Battle of Rafia, they had seventy five thousand infantrymen. They only have twenty five thousand here. So you see how that instability and in the uprising really had crippled them. Okay, it's they're beaten so badly. Only a five thousand or so of the twenty five thousand men survive. I mean, they're, they're just crushed. And so Judea is 100% in Syrian control. There's not going to be any kind of real true Egyptian threat um, on a serious level again. And so for the first time in over a century, Israel is going to be, uh, be, again, they're going to be firmly implanted in the Syrian empire. They're going to have that conflict between the two empires come to Uh, to to a stop now what's really obscure in verse 14 is this sort of um, phrase "That violent men among your own people will join them in the fulfillment of the vision but they won't succeed Uh, we don't really know what in the world that means (laughs) just being honest we just don't know Uh, however um, there are two factions that we do know that were vying for control among the jewish people during this time so on the one uh, hand on the one side we had the Oniads, who controlled the priesthood, and uh, they 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 were on you know they supported Egyptian rule, and and the reason for that is because the Egyptians really allowed a greater degree of autonomy in Judea. They were uh, of the two empires as you're going to see, and they were far friendlier to the Jews than the Syrians were. Uh, the Tobiads, they they were the other side of. of of this uh, faction, and the Tobiads politically married into the Oneats. Uh, they leaned Syrian. So, so you have a, a pro-Egyptian and pro-Syrian faction, okay? So we're uncertain what the meaning of, of the phrase fulfillment of this vision really is, but it's possible that the Jews took to heart Daniel's prophecies, especially in this time, and they believed that an end to foreign oppression was coming, uh, and perhaps they took matters into their own hands to make sure there was victory and they failed, right? The Syrians were the ones who gained this incredible victory. So if you're fighting on the side of the Egyptians, as a lot of Jews were, um, they, they were not successful. So that, that would seem to make sense. First, number 15, um, we we get this this idea that the king of the north is going to come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. So, uh, Scopus, who was, a, who, who was an Egyptian general, he leads a band of survivors to Sidon, where the Syrians lay siege to and capture the city. So, there you go. There's your reference right there, fortified city that, that's captured. Scopus is going to come back to Egypt uh, with 6,000 men from Greece. So, he, he, he gets out. The, the Syrians don't execute him. They let him go. He goes to Greece, gets six thousand men to come back with him, and he wants to launch a feature attack on the Syrians. But instead, he gets kind of power hungry, and he hatches a plot to overthrow Ptolemy the Fifth. Well, his plot fails, and he's executed in one ninety six B.C. Uh, so it, that there you go. He's he's out of the picture. Verses sixteen and seventeen. Uh, Antiochus the He he sets his residence in. Judea. So you got the king of the north going to march unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He'll pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He'll make plans to come with what might, with the might of his entire kingdom. He'll form an alliance with the king of the south and he'll give him a daughter in marriage to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plans going to fail. So Antiochus III, he sets his residence in Judea. Then he gives his daughter Cleopatra. Not that Cleopatra. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. If you, it's not that Cleopatra. Not not that that that's that's further on down the road. He gives his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V in a political marriage to ensure that there is a, a a kind of a tense peace that will take place. That's where he'll you know you read that phrase. He'll give him a daughter in, in marriage. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, so he wants a, a peace and influence over Ptolemy V. The plans are going to fail. Why is it going to fail? Well, because Cleopatra becomes a powerful ruler in the wake of her husband's death. <laughs> so, uh, her husband dies and, you know, when you got a taste of power, do you want to give that up? You know, pr- probably not, right? If you were if you were if you were suddenly put into a position where you were governing an entire kingdom, uh, you wouldn't just so readily hand the keys over. So Cleopatra's, you know, she, she decides, I'm, I'm going to take the reins here. And she, she becomes the kind of regent to her son, Ptolemy the Sixth, who succeeds uh, his father. So the, so the plan there that Antiochus hatched, uh failed. Uh, verse 18, he continues to expand his empire. He goes to Turkey, to Judea, to India, uh you you see that there he's going to turn his attention to the coastland conquer many cities he does that uh, but a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame he'll take refuge in his own fortress but he'll stumble and fall and be seen no more so he keeps going to turkey he goes to india he goes to greece so he goes all over the place. and Antiochus is really expanding the empire here. And he begins to annex a lot of the Greek islands. One uh, Greek location that causes a lot of consternation in the Mediterranean world is, is, is Thrace. He gets there in 196 BC. And he goes that way because he's encouraged by none other than Hannibal himself. So if you are familiar with the Punic Wars and Hannibal of Carthage, right? He has the elephants, famous elephants that marched through the Swiss Alps and in this incredible um, military advance, right? On, on, on Rome. This is that Hannibal. He, he He's exiled. He's living in the court with Antiochus III. He's already had these, these wars with Rome and he has lost. And so he's He's living in exile, and he encourages Antiochus II to keep keep going, keep going. Man. Get, get those islands, get Greece, get on Rome's doorstep, and, and the Roman Republic. It's not Rome is not an empire yet. It's a republic. The senators are the ones who control it. And every so often, if there's a military uh, war that must be fought, the senators. They, uh, they they raise an army. They appoint a consul who goes out and leads the army. And as soon as the consul gets back to Rome, he relinquishes power, and 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 in that way, the republic continues to operate that way. That's all going to change with Julius Caesar down the road. He'll become the first emperor, but Rome is still a republic, and they send the military uh, out. This is this is the commander from out of the land who puts an end to the insolence, right? They send their military out. Uh, They defeat Antiochus III in 191 B.C. at Thermopylae. Then again at 190 B.C. in Magnesia. They cause him to come back home in shame. Uh, Antiochus' expansion efforts are done. He's going to die in 187 B.C. So verse 19, that reference of him stumbling and being seen no more. He goes back home and he dies and he's never seen again. Seleucus IV will succeed in the third. That's number 20. Verse 20, successor sends out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. But after a brief reign, he's going to die, not from anger or battle. So uh, he succeeds. He's really unpopular because of the large tax burden he places on the people. And he has to do that because he has to raise money as tribute paid to Rome. So you, you lose two big wars to the Roman uh, Republic, you don't get to call the shots. So they're now vassals to Rome, and they're paying tribute. So he has to raise that money, uh, and he's not popular. He dies under mysterious circumstances. We're not really sure how he dies or why he dies. It's a mystery. Any, anytime I see that in history, you always wonder, uh, you know, you know, who who did it, who poisoned, who killed the guy. Uh, but you know, da- Daniel's vision says that he didn't die from anger or in battle. It just says that he's, he's, he's going to die uh, after a brief reign. And it was very brief. His younger brother, here's our buddy Antiochus IV, okay? His younger brother, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, is returning from Rome right at the same time that Seleucus IV dies. Now, what Antiochus is doing in Rome was following that that defeat to the Roman uh, Republic you had to have uh, prisoners, political prisoners, kind of like hostages in a way, right? But you were a political prisoner, and so you'd say, "Look, we're gonna, we're going to take one of your guys, and you're going to take one of our guys of, of high value and esteem, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do that to ensure we don't do anything stupid from a military point of view, right? We don't we, we don't cause conflict here. We have these prisoners, and if you do something stupid, uh, then your your prisoner is going to lose his head, right? So Antiochus the fourth is one of those guys." And he was the rightful heir, or he was not the rightful heir, I'm sorry, to, uh, to the Seleucid throne. He was a political prisoner from 190 to 175 BC. When he leaves for Rome, his nephew, who is the rightful heir to the throne, actually comes to replace him. So Antiochus gets to come back home. His nephew is going to take his place as that political prisoner. When all this is going on, you kind of see how Antiochus kind of begins to get into a position of power, even though he's not in line for secession. Verses 21 through 35 are all about the, 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 the Antiochus here, king of the north. The struggles between uh, the Syrians and the Egyptians are going to culminate in this one contemptible person who is Antiochus Fourth Epiphanes. The prophecy's assessment of his character... Is based exclusively on the turmoil he causes during his reign in, you know, in in Jerusalem, and you see that in Daniel chapter eight. You see it in Daniel chapter nine. You're seeing it again here in chapter eleven. Uh, you know he is not well thought of. Uh, verse twenty one. He he's a co-regent. I've, I've explained kind of how this works, right? He's a co-regent with his other nephew, who's also named Antiochus, okay, so verse 21, the next to come to power is a despicable man, this Antiochus IV, who's not in line for royal succession, he'll slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue, well, his nephew, who's also Antiochus, right, he dies in 170 BC, we don't know how, isn't that interesting, (laughs) we don't know how he dies, or how Antiochus IV's brother dies, but both those deaths allow Antiochus to kind of get on in to that Um, so he's now the sole ruler, even though he was never in line to begin with for, for secession, out of order. You know, flattery and intrigue. He, he kind of comes in. So he I mean, he was he was a smooth talker. He was charismatic. Um, he 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 knew how to how to sway crowds and sway people. And Josephus is a, a ancient Jewish historian. He has a lot to say about Antiochus. Not a whole lot that's good. But he does make remarks about Antiochus' political intrigue and charisma. Uh, verses 22 to 24 are interesting. They're kind of out of sequence in a way. Um, which is, so, so 22, before, his, before him, great armies, uh, they'll, they'll be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he makes various alliances. He becomes strong despite having a handful of followers. Without warning, he goes into the richest areas of the land, and distributes among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something only the predecessors had never done. He'll plot the overthrow of strongholds, and this will last for a short while. It's out of sequence um, because 22 is more of a general statement about Antiochus with you know, it, it, with reference to his removal of the high priest. The high priest at the time um, was a man named Onias III. Remember how I said the Oniads were... Um, Pro-Egyptians, right? So Ananias III, 3rd pro-Egyptian guy, he's the high priest, he's the covenant prince that's being referenced to here. He's removed from his position. And then verses 23 and 24 are kind of treated as a chronological statement. So they discuss the the wars, the Egyptian and Syrian wars, a little bit. Uh, but but well, let's kind of visit 23 for a second? Because I want to I want to jump into this real quick if I can. We're not sure what only a handful of followers refers to. Either it's his rise to power or it's his influence in Jerusalem. But I think it's probably him gaining influence in Jerusalem. So Ananias III, he's the high priest, pro-Egyptian. He has the highest religious and political office in Israel. One of the things that you see happen when the Jews come back from exile, this is not the case so much during the times of the kings so if you go first second kings first second chronicles first second samuel in the old testament the high priest really functions in a religious role you don't see too much in the way of politics you do a little bit um yoash becomes king and you know he becomes king because the priest the high priest uh crowns him king and his grandmother, Athaliah, is, is later on killed. But you don't see a lot of instances like that. It's mostly religious. When the exiles return, um, things kind of change a little bit. And so the high priest begins to function. There's no king. So if you think about it, the Persians were, were, were ruling over Judea. Then it was the Seleucids. Then it was the Ptolemies and went back and forth. Now it's the Seleucids, the Syrians here. So there's no king. So the high priest kind of becomes a de facto political and religious figure at the time. And and, and that continues all the way through the first century. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he's got Caiaphas. You know, Caiaphas is not occupying just a religious role. He's also the highest political figure in the land um, outside of Rome, right? I mean, from a Jewish perspective, he's he's it. Uh, So... That's where you see this kind of begin to take shape is this is this post-exilic period where the priest gets political too. He's so, he, so Onias the third's pro-egyptian. The Tobiads were a powerful family faction the pro-syrian I talked about that earlier. The Tobiads had Jason, who is Onias's brother on their side. Can you imagine that? So your brother is on a different side. Think about the civil War and how it was fought here in America and how we had family members in the north and the south who fought against each other, brother against brother, father against son. You actually have that here a little bit, a picture of that, Jason on one side, Anias on the other side. And so the Tobiads and, and, and Jason, they're pro-Syrian, they're pro-Hellenistic. So Hellenism uh, is, is Greek culture, and there were two types of Jews that were on the scene when Jesus was walking around in the first century. There were Hebraic Jews who spoke Hebrew. They had their family roots that, that they, they could trace to um, to Israel. They were, they were, they were, there was no Greek influence or blood in their family whatsoever. They held strong to the Jewish customs and the Torah. They were very conservative. Those are guys like Peter. Okay, Then you have Hellenistic Jews. These guys were, they were Jewish, but they had Greek blood in them, or they had, you know, they, they didn't necessarily live in, they didn't always have Greek blood, but a lot of times they had Greek blood in them too, but uh, but they didn't live in Judea necessarily, they lived, you know, outside of Israel, um, They were but, but they were Jewish and, and held to some of those customs. Maybe and if they were in Israel, they would have been in the Decapolis, they would have been in Galilee, so, you know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee, right? He grew up in an area that was very Hellenistic, so... Uh, They they would have lived in those types of places. And so a Hellenistic Jew could speak Greek and they could speak Hebrew and they could speak Aramaic. They can do all three of these things. Uh, They were oftentimes a little bit more educated in the classics because they had that Greek influence. Um, They understood the Gentile culture and nature and customs. And and so they really could identify well with the Greeks and the Romans and, and they could really kind of bridge the gap between the Jewish world and and the, and the gentile world. Perfect example of a Hellenistic Jew is Paul. Paul's one of these guys, okay? So you have that division right here that begins to to happen that, that between between the two sides. And the Tobiat the, the um, Tobia, Tobias, Tobias and, and Jason, they're they're pro-Syrian, they're pro-Hellenistic. They want to impart Jewish culture and language and ideas. On the Jewish people all right they want to turn Jerusalem into a Hellenistic city uh, which which whew, that upset a lot of people as you can imagine so Antiochus the fourth is like you know what I'm better off if I make Jason my high priest so he manipulates all types of things to get Jason into the the role and that type of actions alluded to in verse number 24 so verses 25 through 30, Antiochus, he moves his troops close enough to draw out Egypt's army and engage in, in another war. He's the one that really kind of um, eggs this on, all right? The Egyptians are defeated. His brother, um, I'm sorry, his brother, the brother of Ptolemy the VI, who's the Egyptian king at the moment. He declares himself king. So if you look at verse 25, uh, you read, the king of the south is going to go to battle with the mighty army, but to no avail. There's going to be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall, right? So his brother says, hey, I'm going to be king. That's the plot. That's the household bringing him down. Um, but they, they both kind of put aside their differences to unite, to defend Egypt in 168 BC from yet another attack from Antiochus. He's trying to trying really hard to, to control and capture the Egyptian kingdom of Ptolemy. Um, verses 29 through 30, Antiochus' second invasion against the United Egypt occurs. But here's, here's something that happens that I think is really interesting, uh, especially in, in terms of biblical history and just world history in general. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he's going to once again invade the south. This is, this is Antiochus, okay? But this time, the result's going to be different warships from Western coastlands. Who is in the West? Rome, right? Rome. They're going to scare him off and he'll withdraw and return home. But he'll vent his anger against the people, of the Holy Covenant, and reward those who forsake the covenant. Rome steps in and a Roman representative comes up. And, you know, the Roman Republic is is pretty powerful at this point. They're really gaining more and more power They've already defeated the Syrians once. The Syrians paid tribute to Rome. So it's not as if Antiochus can really do a whole lot here. And a Roman representative, it's said, got out and met with Antiochus and the rulers of Egypt. And in front of all the other folks who were gathered, officers, nobles, that kind of thing, this Roman representative walked around Antiochus IV drawing a sand in the circle. And he lifted Antiochus, and he demanded a decision before he left the circle. Either you withdraw your troops and we let you live, or you can choose to fight, and we'll slaughter you. But you're not going to leave this circle until you give us an answer. Now that was extremely embarrassing, especially for a guy like Antiochus IV, who was full of pride, full of arrogance. Thought very highly. Of him. He thought so highly of himself, he gave himself the title Epiphanes. He said, "What? Why does that matter?" Well, what that refers to is, is is Antiochus being a god. He thought of himself on the same page as the Greek gods. And if you go back and listen to our teachings that we did in Daniel chapters eight and nine, we talk about that a little bit. So Antiochus, of course, says, "You know what?" <laughs> On second thought, let me get out of here. So he, he 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 goes home. Now verses twenty-eight and thirty. I skipped over twenty-eight, but verses twenty-eight and thirty are are a little confusing. I kind of skipped over it for a reason, and the reason I did that is there's confusion in first and second Maccabees, kind of about what happened and when. Let me just give you a quick footnote on this. First and second Maccabees um, are apocryphal books from a theological perspective. So what that means is we don't accept these as scripture and biblical canon. However, they are really great historical books that are somewhat to fairly accurate of the events of the time period. And that's that's kind of what we how we use those books. They don't give us a whole lot of information about kind of what happens when. The Bible gives us no details either. So it's only important to point out Then Antiochus takes aggressive actions against the Jews. We see that in verse 31. What does he do? Well, he goes back. His army uh, takes over the temple. And so what he does is he builds a fortress called the Acre. He builds it near the temple mount to monitor activity. So before the KGB, before the Gestapo, before all the secret police we have in our modern world, You have the Akra. The Acra is an ancient version of secret policing, monitoring activity, checking things out, making sure we make folks disappear, pay a price, whatever, who are stepping out a lot. That's what the Akra is made to do. They stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple. Uh, They erected the abomination uh, that caused desolation, probably a statue to Zeus. They sacrificed pigs on the altar. It's just the ultimate thing you shouldn't do. And so all of a sudden now, there's a massive uproar. Um, And the Jews are split. They've got the pro-Greeks, the Hellenistic forces on one side, and they've got the Hebraic forces on the other side. Uh, Jason is removed as the high priest. There's a guy named Menelaus who wasn't even a member of the right family. He had to be from Aaron's lineage to be a high priest, right? Uh, he becomes the high priest. He probably outbid Jason for that position within to buy the to buy family. And you heard that right. <laughs> you bought the position with influence. You did different things to buy it. Uh, by the way, we have that happen in our world. You said, Pastor, wait a minute. I, I don't. I don't see that. Well, look, I got a lot of buddies who work in D.C. They work on staff, different different centers, and congressional members. Do you know how committee chairmanships? Are, are, are selected, it's not based on, well, you know, Senator Brown over here was a great guy, has a lot of respect, and, and he's really, you know, we'll give him the chairmanship to the armed forces. That'd be great. That's not how they do that. You get a chairmanship because you buy it. Uh, you bring, you pledge to bring X amount of money and donors into your party. If you get the chairmanship, you have to sway the right leadership and, and with the right votes to get some influence. I mean, that's how you get a chairmanship. Uh, and so we're seeing the same thing play out right here with, uh, with the high priest. And so Menelaus becomes the high priest. Jason, he hears a rumor that Antiochus IV had been killed During this second war. Remember, Antiochus goes down, the Romans intervene, embarrass him. So while that's going on, this is happening up here in Jerusalem where Menelaus becomes the high priest. Jason thinks Antiochus is dead, so he moves against Menelaus, trying to remove him. And when Antiochus returns, he sees that as a threat. You're trying to usurp me. You're trying to destroy me. And so Antiochus massacres thousands of Jews. He sells even more thousands into slavery. And so what begins to unfold is you, you have what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Where that begins to take shape and unfold. And really it's 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 a massive civil war between the Jewish people who are loyal to Antiochus and the, and, the, and the Hellenistic side and then those who... Are, are the Hebraic Jews who are loyal to God, um, maybe Egypt, um, you know, the Jewish way of life, okay? Verses 33 through 35, those, you know, the wise, those are the folks who are similar in mind and spirit to Daniel. Once you get to verse 36 through 45, we get to this, this thing that uh, talks about the king who's going to do as he pleases. This is a really difficult passage to interpret. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our Daniel 11 teaching, but it's difficult to interpret because it's not clear who is the focus of the passage. Is it, is it Antiochus or is it the Antichrist? 1 Peter 1, 10-12 talks about how divine revelation is given to human authors who did not fully understand the implications of what they were recording. So here's here's what could be happening. What could be happening is Daniel could be thinking he's writing about Antiochus and he's writing about this particular ruler but really what he's writing is being directed towards somebody in the future in the distant future I'll, I'll mention this illustration again I talked about it in the teaching but uh, on, on chapter 11 but think of biblical prophecy as a collapsible telescope it shows you know a telescope that's collapsible has has something you're looking at stars moon you know an object whatever the object is on the one end. But what makes that object possible, what makes it magnified, is that there are mechanical builds that that build up on each other that lead to that point. And so biblical prophecy, oftentimes we focus on the one event, whatever that event might be. And we think prophecy goes from point A to point B. But really how most prophecy works in Scripture is there's, there's different events which build up and lean to that. So you don't go from point A to point B. You go from A to B, you know, you, you go from A to B to C to D to e. you know, Here's a lot of things you do along the way. There's a lot of events that have to occur that build up to that. And if you look at the the, the, the person of Jesus and the death and resurrection of, of, of Jesus, it's a perfect example from the very beginning Of Genesis 3, 14, and 15 where God gives the instruction of what this is going to look like. To Abraham saying all the stars in the sky and being told he's a blessing to the nations. To, you know, uh, to Jeremiah saying that God's going to write his law on your hearts. There's a relationship that God's going to desire from you. I mean, there's so many prophecies that build on each other that lead to the coming of Christ. That's really how prophecy kind of works out. Now, prophecy also does this. In some parts of Scripture, prophecy builds like this. It has a near-term and it has a long-term fulfillment. So I had a seminary professor who coined this phrase called a fill-fulment, when you see that kind of thing happen. Uh, a fill-fulment, kind of play play on the word fulfillment, right? A fill fulfillment is such a prophecy which describes a prophetic near-term and a long-term event. So you see a lot of this in in, in Daniel. A lot of what is meant for Antiochus, I really believe is also meant for the Antichrist uh, down the road. Okay. Now there's some reasons that kind of help us see that this last passage is is one of those type of instances. Okay. One of those is you have a lot more cosmic language being used. Um, Time of the end is a phrase we see a lot. That takes us to the edge of history. Uh, Verses 40 through 45, if you you were to read those, they don't even fit with the life of Antiochus IV. Uh, So what makes it really difficult to assign the text solely to the Antichrist, though, is that verses 35 through 36 and verses 39 through 40, they don't have any clear transitional language. So we don't actually get a feeling that we're moving from one person to the next person. It's kind of all treated like it's it's one singular person. That's why I said, you know, uh, Daniel is writing and he's probably thinking this is all about that guy. He doesn't know what's Antiochus, but it's about that, that guy, the king of the north, when really what he's writing could pertain to both the king of the north and the coming of the Antichrist. Verses 36 and 38 describe both. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist are going to be prideful. Both are larger than life figures, both view themselves as God. They, they show disdain for, for the Lord and for other gods. Um, verse 38 says the king pays uh, homage to the god of the fortresses. That's a reference, I think, to his own military machine. Antiochus certainly was that kind of guy, but I think so will be the Antichrist because he'll have to have a military uh, machine to, to do what he's going to be doing. Uh, and then verses 40 through 45, uh, they kind of give us some glimpses into eternity in the Old Testament. Um, into this kind of eschatological or the end times type kind of ending. But you have to be careful, right? Because the text doesn't give us a whole lot of details. I think it's best to conclude their verses 40 through 45. They point to a violent end to history in in regards to the destruction of the pride and the wicked. We talked about that earlier. Uh, Verse 40, time of the end, it's likely the end because verses 12... One through uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, follow that passage with a reference to the resurrection of the dead. So you kind of have that linkage there where I really think we're speaking of the actual end here. Okay. Um, so why does all this kind of stuff matter? And just, just I'll just watch you through chapter 11. went through a lot of detail with you. Uh, could certainly go through more. I didn't even touch on you know, what happened with the Maccabees and that whole revolt and what came out of that. By the way, Hanukkah comes from that. Uh, I know a lot of us aren't Jewish who are listening to this, so you might wonder where Hanukkah come from. It comes from the revolt, the Maccabean revolt that takes place in the events that I'm talking about here at Antiochus the 4th Epiphanies. Um, and so anyway, uh, wh- what's the point behind that? Why do, why do we spend time talking about this? For a few reasons, okay? I think number one, this shows the the validity of Scripture. I think you can trust Scripture. I think you can trust the authority of Scripture when you take a, a passage like Daniel 11 that has such intricate detail that it points to in, in a very accurate way. And so you know what? If it's got that part of history right, so accurate a portrayal of the events that happened hundreds of years in advance well, what else does the does the Bible have right kind of gives you um, especially if you're skeptical kind of gives you a place where you're like I want to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt my own personal journey of faith was I grew up in church and I, I was all about you know church and God and Jesus but I never really knew why I believed what I believed so I, I kind of got to high school towards the end of high school certainly the first part of college I kind of had a small crisis of faith moment uh, as I began to realize that I believe what I believe because I grew up that way (laughs) and because I was told to believe that, not because I really did the digging myself. It's the kind of stuff I just walked you through here in chapter 11 that I did on my own because I'm just kind of nerdy that way. I (laughs) I did that on my own in college that led me to believe, holy cow, there's too much here that I think you know, the Bible really gets right, or at least close to being right. And so I better give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And that's what really got me kind of back on track with my faith and kind of where I'm at today. Where I'm like, here's, here's, and so and, and perhaps you're one of those folks, you're listening to this, and you're a little bit skeptical, and for we've walked through this, and you're like, wow, this is kind of eye-opening. Now, you, you could also come back and say, well, wait a minute, how do you know that Daniel is not somebody else writing for him, and, and they're not recording all these events after the fact. Well, a couple of things in regards to that. One, I don't have time to jump into it today. The entire work of Daniel does not fit a pseudonym. In other words, somebody writing under his name It doesn't really fit that very well, especially for the time period we think that that may have occurred. So, if you happen to believe that somebody else wrote the book of Daniel, there's actually a certain time period that we think that may have happened. The problem is that kind of language, which would have been present in Daniel uh, at that time, is not present here. And that's really um, it's, it's it's much more cosmic in nature. I know we have some cosmic language here, but it's but the entire book would have been filled with much more cosmic type language. Uh, it would have been very um, it'd been really um exaggerated in its detail if you read the book if you read the apocryphal book bell the dragon which is kind of a companion to daniel you'll see what i'm talking about the that that, you know that exaggerated language that's that's very flowery and cosmic and just larger than life like you'd see a lot of that you don't you don't see that here uh it also wouldn't be written um and three languages, which is what Daniel, Daniel's in Hebrew and Aramaic, right? And it was later trans, it was later copied into the Septuagint, which is Greek. Uh, if it was written in that time period where, where if someone was writing under Daniel's name, it, it would have been, it would just would have been Greek or it would have been Aramaic. It would actually had any Hebrew in it. Uh, so that, that's another clue there too. That's from the, just the linguistic stance. I think the other thing, too, is if you're writing it from a point of view as, hey, these things already happened, then when you're writing to your readers, you want to really kind of emphasize, hey, this is a prophecy that occurred. And and you want your reader to believe that. You want your reader to really buy into this prophecy and how important the prophecy is and how it was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled in this way and in that way. Um, and, and, and we have examples of that kind of work, too, outside of Scripture, where folks wrote about history after it already happened as if it was, you know, predicted beforehand. And that's the kind of language you see. But in Daniel, you don't see that. There is no, there's no, hey, reader, pay attention. Hey, reader, buy into this. Hey, reader, you got to believe. There, there's none of that kind of stuff really here. It's just, it's very simplistic. All right, Daniel, here's the, here, here's the vision. This is what's going to happen. And things are laid out in a way that's not trying to convince you, and 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 really um, try to sway you and persuade you to believe that they happened. It's just very matter of fact. Uh, So I don't I don't think it's that case where someone's writing from a from a later position events that have already occurred, trying to get you to believe it was prophetic. and, and time does not permit me, and we've been at it long enough already. So time does not really permit me to jump more into that. So I think Daniel eleven is really important for for those reasons. I, I think it adds the validity to Scripture, validity to who God is, that God's in control, that God sets people up and brings people down. I think you can trust the Bible. If you can trust the Bible and what it says here, what else is the Bible right about that you should probably give the benefit of the doubt to and trust? Okay. Uh, so that's Daniel chapter 11 in detail. I hope you enjoyed it. If uh, this is really helpful to you and impactful, hey, share this with somebody, man. Uh, let someone know uh, and, and and share the podcast with them. We'd love to have folks listen in and learn and grow. And uh, it was fun. We're going to try and do this again uh, later. We I, I, Like I told you, there's so much that we leave on the cutting table there that we just can't put into um, a message and so this is just another outlet to kind of talk in detail about some of the things that just didn't make it into the teaching on Sunday but I think are pretty interesting and and I think are really uh, you know they can be important for you if you're if you're kind of minded that way open-minded willing to learn wanting to grow a little bit uh, I think, I think this, this kind of stuff can be pretty helpful. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I, I hope you guys have an amazing rest of the day wherever, wherever you're listening from. And if you are local, hey, listen, if you're local, we'd love to have you, man. Come out to Radiant Church. We're, we're here every Sunday, 10 a.m., right off Highway 123, 11075 Watson Drive, 10 minutes from Clemson University. For more information about us and who we are and our church, go to RadiantChurchSC.com. All right.